Warning, the following contains spoilers pertaining to the show and subject matter discussed. Also, strong language and adult content may be included. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you. Mmm. These are beyond delicious. <laughs> They're even better with cheese. Ketchup and mustard are fine. Actually, chili and cheese might be pretty good. Yeah, definitely chili and cheese. I'm a simple girl, just cheese. And pair it with a fresh papaya juice? Mmm, you're all set. Nope, it's gotta be the mango. No way. Papaya or pina colada. It's the only way to wash down a Grace papaya dog. Sir, you keep Christmas in your way, and I'll keep it in mine. Have it your way, but you don't know what you're missing out on. What do you prefer, Gray's papaya or the street vendor's hot dogs? <sighs> Good question. Well, I've been eating hot dogs in the city long enough to remember the days of the old dirty water dogs, which were amazing. This is before they would grill them up for you. Just pull them out of the water, shake, 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 and put them on a warm bun with some ketchup and spicy mustard. Those were amazing. Today's dogs aren't bad either. Something about the hot dogs in New York. They're just amazing. But to answer your question, I like raised papaya. Super cheap, more variety, and again, the fresh juice can't be beat. I couldn't have said it better myself. Welcome to Stage Whisper. I'm your host, Hope Bird, and with me is my co-host, Andrew Cortez. Today, we're going to be discussing the raucous musical, Bullets Over Broadway. So, hurry and take your seats. It looks like the show is starting. Hello, everyone. Welcome into today's performance of Stage Whisper. If I should take a notion to jump into the ocean, take nobody's business if I do. But today's episode is everyone's business as we delve into the slapstick gangster-ridden musical Bullets Over Broadway. The beloved story found its home on the Broadway stage where it had audiences rolling in the aisles to clever gags, stunning dance numbers, and familiar tunes. But before the big premiere, we have to go way back to how it all began. So let's lay the groundwork. The musical is based on the 1994 film Bullets Over Broadway, which had a screenplay by Woody Allen and Douglas McGrath. Work on a musical version of Bullets started in the year 2000 with Marvin Hamlish and Craig Karnania writing the music and Allen writing the book. In 2003, Hamlish confirmed that work on the musical was proceeding. In an interview on the opening night of the musical in April 2014, Alan said that he had resisted turning the film into a musical for years, having no interest in it as a musical. However, his sister Letty Aronson thought that it could be done as a period musical, and Alan then became interested. Marvin Hamlish had played a few of the new songs for Alan, but Alan didn't think they were right for the musical. His sister then proposed the idea of using songs of the 1920s, quote, and it suddenly came to life. Susan Stroman was brought into the creative team two years before the opening. 
This is the perfect time to introduce our design team. Stage adaptation, Woody Allen. Original screenplay, Woody Allen and Douglas McGrath. Additional lyrics, music, adaptation, and music supervision, Glenn Kelly. Director and choreographer, Susan Stroman. Scenic designer, Santa Laquasto. Costume designer, William Ivy Long. Lighting designer, Donald Holder. Sound designer, Peter Halinski. Hair and wig designer, Paul Huntley. And makeup designer, Angelina Avalon. The show arrived at the St. James Theater on April 10th, 2014, and played 156 performances, closing on August 24th, 2014. A non-equity tour was soon started in October 2015, and the show saw its first high school production in Santa Barbara, California in 2017. Bullets Over Broadway would be nominated for six Tony Awards that season. So let's do the tiger rag and head up the lazy river into our story. You're in Prohibition-era New York City, just before the crash in 1929. A time of flappers, jazz, bathtub gin, and pistol-packing gangsters. The curtain is a mural of dancing chorus girls and musicians playing trombones and saxophones. The orchestra plays the Overture and Cheech, a machine gun-toting hitman in the service of boss Nick Valenti, casually walks out and fires at the curtain, spelling out bullets over Broadway. At Nick's Club, a speakeasy in Midtown Manhattan, akin to the real Three Deuces or 21 Club on 52nd Street, the gorgeous Atta girls are in full swing with Tiger Rag. Among them is Olive Neal, Nick's burlesque dancer girlfriend, who yearns for the big part in a Broadway show that he has guaranteed her but not yet delivered. They argue with Olive, saying, The only way you'll ever have my name in lights is if I change my name to Exit. And Nick insists, But gee, baby, ain't I good to you? David Shane, a playwright and self-proclaimed serious artist, sings the same lyrics to his long-suffering girlfriend of 10 years, Ellen. His new play has been turned down by every producer in New York except Julian Marks, who calls to say that he has a single backer, Valenti. All David has to do is find a part for Olive. Ellen asks that if the play is not a success, they will move back to Pittsburgh, get married, and have a real life. I hear you, David assures her, but you have to realize that marriage is a very serious decision, like suicide. Ellen laments the blues my naughty sweetie gives to me. The song, Taint a Fit Night Out for Man or Beast, is sung as a pack of Valenti gangsters shoot it out with members of the rival Kostovex. David and Julian go to Nick's house to meet about the play, and Olive demonstrates her singular ability in the hot dog song. Julian visits the aging diva, Helen St. Clair, to persuade her to take the lead. You want me to play a frumpy housewife who gets dumped for a flapper? She answers in disbelief. I'm Helen St. Clair. They go wild, simply wild over me. Cheech sings Up a Lazy River as he drives a mug to Gowanus Canal, shoots him on Valenti's orders, and dumps the body. David enters the theater for the first day of rehearsals, thrilled 
he sings, I'm sitting on the top of the world. Olive's flawlessly untalented reading turns the song into a dirge. Cheech is a font of suggestions for improving the script. Olive catches the eye of male lead Warner Purcell, who suggests let's misbehave. David falls for Helen, who cagily uses his infatuation to improve her part. On his birthday, she gives him a silver cigarette case that she has received from Cole Porter, inscribed, Let's Do It, and explains there's a broken heart for every light on Broadway. David joins Ellen at Nick's Club, where the Atta Girls are singing, We'll be glad when you're dead, you rascal you, while here comes the hot tamale man plays. During a break in rehearsal a few days later, David has misgivings about passing off Cheech's now voluminous changes as his own. What are you worried about? I ain't going to tell anybody, he says. Tain't nobody's business if I do. Act one ends with the cast aboard the train for Boston for tryouts as the leggy red caps sing Runnin' Wild. When act two starts, the cast is overjoyed by the daily improvement of what they don't know is Cheech's script. Cheech, assigned by Nick to be Olive's bodyguard, confronts Warner about his involvement with her and tells him there'll be some changes made. Helen, impressed by David's rewrites, infers that she's available, but I ain't gonna play no second fiddle. David tells Ellen that he has fallen for Helen, and her answer is, I found a new baby. Hours before opening night on Broadway, Olive's body is found in the Gowanus Canal, shot by Cheech for ruining his show. David is horrified, and the panic is on. The show is a hit. David realizes that Cheech was the real artist and reconciles with Ellen in She's Funny That Way, while the cast looks on the bright side. The The end. end. Now let's discuss the parts that we liked or we didn't like. Do to do to do. The show was a mixed bag for me. I absolutely love the movie. I love the movie. Fabulous film. But the transfer to the stage was missing something. Yeah, you know? it definitely just it had this this part that just didn't quite hit the same as the movie did. I think the fault mostly lay in the book and the music. Which is crazy because the book is what I absolutely loved about the film. Right, because it's... um, It's Woody Allen. Woody Allen. I almost said Allen something. Woody Allen. And Woody Allen also was part of the transfer to the you know the stage. You would have thought it, it'd be seamless, but there it, it lacked. The book didn't have the same quick wit and timing that we've come to expect from the movie. Definitely. It's a jukebox musical, technically, because they took songs from, you know... 1920s that were already published and then put them in. Exactly. I feel like that also ended up giving it like this layer of dust rather than the fresh exploration you could have had with the characters having the songs. Well, it just, it didn't feel connected to the story itself. Yeah. Even though like as we were doing the synopses, I could hear the songs and I was like, okay, yeah, these are clever. It also didn't feel genuine. Or authentic. Yeah. Same thing, you know. Um, 
I mean, I'm just thinking like when Warner Purcell sings Let's Misbehave or even Helen Sinclair emphasizing Let's Do It, you know? These songs didn't feel feel genuine. And, I, and it's not the first time I've seen a musical that has tried to repurpose old jazz standards from that time for use like that. And it's been like, oh, this doesn't necessarily work. Right. Well, and I think because what you're missing is in a musical, we like to use the music as an as either a story drive or a insight to the character itself. Right, where I felt like this was almost like underscoring similar to like a film. Exactly. It was more like underscoring than um, helping to progress right. the story. Now that being said, the performance overall were astounding and so much fun. All the classic characters, they were still present. You know, I still found myself smiling and laughing throughout. All of us still there, and she reminds me of, oh, why can't I think of her name from Sing in the Rain? I can't stand them. Your typical, like, mobster girlfriend. Where am I going to be a big star? Yeah, it's, Miss, it's, it's Kitty. Miss Kitty I'm from Kitty. the Drowsy Chef. Yeah, yeah, you know, and then, of course, you know, you had the typical gangsta. I'm Nick Valenti. Hey, oh, hey. Helen Sinclair was just Marin Maisie. Mwah. You know, just this overdramatic, oh my, I am the first lady of the stage, you know. Everybody, all these stock characters, they were there. And then, of course, you got much of what you expected from a Susan Stroman show with the huge dance numbers and the belting chorus lines and the fun slapstick. You know, Susan Stroman, who's done other great huge shows like uh, The Producers and uh, Young Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe she did the Scottsboro Boys, too, if memory serves me right. I have to go double-check that. But she's soon doing the New York, New York. You know, she directed POTUS most recently. Mm-hmm. This is what she's known for. Comedy is where she lives at. Um, so, like I said, I found myself still smiling. I was like, okay, this is... There's still parts of it that work. I could I could easily point out the parts that weren't gelling for me, but then I was like, but all this other stuff is working, and I'm hanging in there with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and they carried over a lot of the iconic things that if you're a fan of the movie, you know, you you definitely were like, oh, it's right there. You know, don't speak, don't speak, be silent, don't speak. That was there. Uh, the unending appetite for Warner Purcell, Brooks, Ash Manxes, mm-hmm. um, was perfect as Warner Purcell. Yeah. Well, and that's that's one of the things is I wanted, maybe maybe a lot of the reason why this show fell flat for me is because I had such high expectations being a lover of the film. Yes. That I, maybe my expectations were far too high and they could have never... I think this is the first time we, we had that experience where we were like, oh my gosh, this is something I adore and now it's coming to the Broadway stage so it's going, it has to be good and then you see it and you're like, hmm... I like the film better. Besides Marin Maisie, who was the real standout, the late, great Nick Cordero, who played Cheech, he was incredible. I found myself... Yeah, he made the show for me. Yeah, I was invested in his character. He did a really good job of communicating both like his lovable side and then that disgusting gangster side. You know, a real, just like, just a real gangster where it's that whole, no, I'm a hardened guy. Like, I have no feelings, and yet I can write poetry. What do you know about that? You know what I mean? Like... He he went on the biggest journey, in my opinion. And despite being the guy that kills everyone, he was the most moral person on stage. And, and Which is ironic. Right, and I just, I loved his character. I loved the way that Nick Cordero played him. I just, he really was the part that made me continue through the show. 
Yeah, he was uh, he was the show's raw. Well, why don't we get into our little box? Little oh boxes, gosh. yeah, yeah. No. No. Oh. <laughs> but well, let's, yes, let's get into the little boxes. Well, let's start with the set. So, I think the set was beautiful. It had the same feel and vibe that you got from the movie. Yes. Very 1920s. Lots of Art Deco, especially at, uh, at the club. Um, I always want to call it the Kitty Club, and it's not the Kitty Club. No. Where the Atta Girls work. The Three Deuces. Yeah. Um, which is supposed to... Uh, uh, is it the Three Deuces? Um. Yeah, the Three Deuces, Nick's Club. Uh, I think it's, well, anyway, like Nick's Club, we'll call it, um, with all that art deco, but then it also carried over into Nick's and Olive's apartment. You saw lots of that art deco work. Um, the reason why I bring up the club in particular is I remember they had that like stained glass in the back with the two girls on it, mm-hmm. and that was really just absolutely fantastic. Um, the other thing was that train car, the end of Act 1. Yes. That huge train car. And it was, I mean, huge. The St. James stage is already enormous. And that train car basically took up that entire stage. And it was so detailed. And then it also moved. I mean, it rotated on the stage. So at one point, you know, it was facing head on with the, the audience. But it, it, so it moved and then everybody was tap dancing up on top of it and in front of it. And the cast was on it, mm-hmm. you know, running wild. Well, and it gave you, you know, um... This that larger than life um, Broadway feel mm-hmm. in through the set because you know it's like yeah these are flats but also these are nineteen twenties flats and they are gorgeous and they are luxury and they are you know um, expensive right and we can have these giant sets but then also like when we were rehearsing in the theater we can have these minimal sets which I love and then speaking of like the expansive set. The fact that the St. James Theater itself became a set for the final scene when the gangsters are chasing Cheech. Mm-hmm. And they're running through the theater and then they're running up into the rafters of the theater, you know. Uh, it was just so exciting. Like, I half expected Nick Cordero and that to come up where we were at in the mezzanine and in the balcony to, like, be running through that at one point, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, suddenly the entire St. James Theater became part of the set. Which I really appreciated that they did that. Um, it really, I don't know. It made it, it. It 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 broke the fourth wall enough that it felt like the show ex- actually extended off the stage. Do you know what I mean? Yes, one hundred. It didn't stop at the proscenium. It was like, well, actually, no. You guys are actually part of this now because, you know. Exactly. Well, and I think you know that being said, I think something that helped. Give it that larger-than-life feeling were the costumes. Yes. Beautiful 1920s looks. Those flappers galore with the jewels well, and, and the headpieces. When I that. think of William Ivy Long, I definitely think of that that stereotypical, like, William Ivy Long can do that chorus girl, that dripping Ziegfeld girl, that, yes. that expensive luxury showgirl. Yes. That's what he specializes in. So he served that and then some... With yes. his design for this show, which I appreciated. Yes, absolutely. And 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 every detail, I mean, every detail was was saw too. I mean, I'm think, I can remember what those girls wore for the tiger rag. And then it, it was something similar, but still different for you'll be we'll be glad when you're dead, you rescue you. They were just brilliant silhouettes and brilliant costumes. 
Pair that with Paul Huntley's beautiful wig design. These beautiful wigs. Mm-hmm. Gorgeous bobs. These gorgeous finger gorgeous. waves. And these finger waves that had movement to them. That they weren't, you know, plastered to the head. They still very much looked like real hair that moved around. And, ah, uh, I, mm. Or they have that, uh, now it's not a bob, but it's that short, it's just to like the chin, mm-hmm. but like parted. Mm, that's a bob. That's a bob? Because See, I'm thinking of a bob like the really short, like almost like pixie. Uh, I mean, they both are types of bobs. Okay, see, this is why you're the hair. Um, Helen St. Clair's outfits were amazing. Those like flowing caftan, you know, almost, it was almost like a, a what is it like I'm thinking of, like a robe a or a kilo. Yeah, just... Oh, it was gorgeous, dripping in gold and black, and just one, well, and then the pinstripes on the gangster suits. Helen St. Clair was giving us very much that Norma Desmond. Yes, it was beautiful, and yeah, the mobsters looked exactly what you thought of gangsters, with the fedora, the pinstripes, the broad shoulders, but the slim waist. You know, it was almost cartoony in the best way. Mm-hmm. Two words: hot dogs. Mm-hmm. I mean, that for me was one of the most outrageous moments, but it was so outrageous that it worked. Like, the first time we, I mean, we saw it the one time and we left, and I was like, this was just, are you kidding? Hot dogs on the Broadway stage. But then I look back now and I'm like, yeah, you went for it. And if you had just held back a little bit, if you, if they had done the hot dog costumes half, halfway, it would have flopped, but because they went all out and those were like good looking costumes, it was so ridiculous that it worked. Mm-hmm. And I was like, Yeah, I'm buying this. Like, we had a whole production number of people in hot dog suits. Get it. Mm-hmm. There's a reason why we're remembering it. It's so outrageous that it, yeah. I mean, there's a reason we also remember, you know, the old ladies and the walkers. We remember from the producers and along with those lines as well, the Nazis dancing in the swastika. It's so outrageous that we remember it. Mm-hmm. Now we remember the hot dogs. Right. And speaking of things to remember, let's talk about the lighting. Um, I thought that the lighting was excellently executed. Perfect at communicating the many different settings that we visit throughout the show. There's a lot of different places we go to, from the Gowanus Canal and the car to the bare stage for the reading, the train, especially with it moving, mm-hmm. to the club, to the apartment, to the party, to the billiard room, like, yeah, da 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 at the stage, but then on the stage and behind the stage. and Out in the street talking to Ellen. I mean, it's here, there, everywhere. But every scene had a different feel to it. Yeah. Even though it might be in the, you know, even though like the street scene and the apartment scene might be in the same place on stage or what have you, it still had a different feel. And that was, that was important, you know, because I felt like they were focused more on the mindset of the scene than on like what time of day, what, you know, if that makes sense. Um, The color palette was beautiful with these blues and reds and then this simple white wash. To balance mm-hmm. it out. So like our back, we had this blues and reds, but then we were washing with this simple white so that we could see the fun, like this fun color in the back mm-hmm. of passion and anger in the red, but then like sadness or honesty or yearning in the blue. And then sometimes when they get mixed up, because I, to me, and this is just getting deep, I felt like Cheech was the blue and David was the red, and that's why, like, when they were on the stage, usually you could see a mix of the two with the purple, mm-hmm. you know. 
Um, but it just, yeah, it. You can see a lot of those other emotions depicted in that sadness and lust and deceit and guilt, you know. Um, and sometimes it was really obvious, but there are other times when it was very, very subtle. You know, when Helen St. Clair is seducing David in her uh, private room or whatever, there's this gorgeous, like, white and bronze wash because it's very ornate, but, like, the furniture is red. Mm-hmm. You know, and not that bright red, but you know that that ornate red, the deep red, mm-hmm. and it's like that's smart. Mm-hmm. You gotta pay attention to those things. Definitely. Well, and I think that that really goes to talk about the direction, and I think that that's the main focus I want to have for this discussion. I thought it was good. I thought yeah. that it was leaning into the expected and stereotypical characters from a story like this and from a time like this it was a gangster comedy of the 20s this is what we get we didn't this wasn't the bloods and the crips you know this is this was just rock about fun where kind of no one got hurt but like people got hurt if you know what i mean you know like yeah people were dying but we weren't to tears about it it reminded me uh a like it's like a little twist on singing in the rain meets gangsters of new york you know what i mean well, and one of the things that I really just appreciated about it is it was larger than life, and that's what it needed to be. That's what we expected. The dancing was beautiful. It was huge, like, especially going back to the whole hot dogs thing. Like, they danced their faces off as hot dogs. Yeah. Yeah. I, I did feel the pacing and flow of the show was very seamless. The scenes and acts never felt too long, which was really, really nice. Um. Things moved as they should have. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, it didn't get hustled. But the, the music itself, it could have gotten rushed and everything. Or even with the comedy. Or sometimes the character. I mean, the way David is, he's very much that neurotic. He's very Woody Allen. Mm-hmm. You know, and it could have just been... And it didn't get that way. It Someone was in control and it was like there was a metronome going. It's like, we have to go at this pace. You can be funny. You can ramble. But this is the pace of the show. And this is... We're going to it. We are a train. We are going to arrive at the 90 minute mark, and that's the end of Act One. And then 50 minutes later is the end of the show. You know, the mm-hmm. show did a, to me, overall did a good job of delivering the iconic story. Again, the missing element was that quick witted humor that we came to expect, um, which again, I think was part book and part music. Yeah. You know, I want to, now you, you brought in choreography. So Susan Sherman not only did the direction, but she also did the, choreography and when you mentioned you know big chorus numbers legs and faces all that stuff that is susan stroman that is her style Mm -hmm. and i love it it is fabulous like we've mentioned before with director choreographers you know the one that mainly comes to mind is casey nicola you see his work you immediately know it's casey nicola the same can be said about susan stroman yes she has that almost golden age kind of look to a show where we're going to see big chorus lines and big production numbers. And it is going to be this larger than life experience, but it's going to be done in a nostalgic kind of way. Yeah. And that's so Susan Stroman. And then you add on to that. Her shows always have big tap numbers. And yes, there it was again in, uh, particularly in running wild and the train scene mm-hmm. and her tap numbers are always just insane. And, and what I also love about Susan Sherman is she goes beyond just the feet. Tap with her can be, I mean, like in the producers, the walkers. In the show, there were things involving the train. 
Mm-hmm. They also use... they also did a tap with the gangsters and they used the guns. The guns. Yeah, and they performed that at the Tonys. Uh, I think it was Taint Nobody's Business. I think so. And, I mean, you know, that's... To me, the dance scene in the show had something for everyone, whether that was these big tap numbers or there were sentimental one-on-one, like, ballroom numbers. You know, uh, if memory serves me right, uh, Purcell... Warner? Uh, Warner Purcell, I almost said William. Warner Purcell and uh, Olive do have like a little like ballroom kind of moment where they're just around the room, you know, like a waltz. And everything. And I, the other, the smart thing I also appreciate about the choreography is knowing that the music is from the 20s, knowing that it's placed in the 20s. She incorporated iconic dances from the 20s. So we had the Charleston, the Cakewalk, the Varsity Drag. The Black Bottom, just to name a few. She put those moves in there, not just being like, I'm creating a whole vocabulary of my own, but she's like, well, we have to include these. Mm-hmm. And that was really, really smart. So I found the choreography very smart and very impressive. Yeah, I mean, well, and, that, and that's one of the things that makes me so frustrated with this show, is it had the direction it want, I wanted. It had the choreography I wanted. It had the things I wanted, and I was disappointed. Yeah, and I think that leads us to our last category, which is the music. The music was iconic and amazing uh, from that time period, and it was performed amazingly. I do not want to take away the fact yeah, that it, it was, like, was performed, performed so well by both the actors and the orchestra, mostly fast-paced, high-energy, reflecting the high points of the jazz age. It just didn't feel like it connected to the book or the characters. And I know that that a song in a musical doesn't have to... Further the story or necessarily comment on what's happening. I mean, you can have the linear and nonlinear storytelling. I understand that. But it literally, there were times where it was like, I don't know why this song. It, mm-hmm. it, like, as an audience member, you were just kind of like, this one doesn't feel right. Is there not a better song we could have done? Um, and the biggest ones that, that did that to me were the ballads mm-hmm. and I'm like if you're singing a ballad okay it goes back to you why do you sing in musical theater and it's because you have such strong emotions that there's no other way to express it and for me I was like if you're feeling such strong emotions in these moments whether it be Ellen and David it's mainly Ellen and David um, you know about their relationship why would you sing that song why wouldn't you make it a little bit more personal Mm-hmm. that's where I felt like we lost it. The other fun ones, like when they did the tiger rag or we'll be glad when you're dead, you rascal you in that, or even let's misbehave. Like those made sense in those moments. Like, okay, I can get on board with that. It was the more intimate moments that I was like, this is not, it's not your song, but you want me to have an intimate moment. You want me to get right. inside it's, with you. It's and- like if you're having an argument with your spouse and you find the perfect song to like display your anger. So you play it for them. It doesn't hit because it's like that's not your yeah i almost felt like they made a mixtape you know like this is how i feel and i was like oh all right it was the ingredient that just stuck out in the recipe and it wasn't right in my opinion but but look as we have said a million times over about a show we saw this show and i'm not gonna sit there and be like i hated this show it was awful no I like nine of the ten things that the show did. And I want 
every one of those nine things that I went, yeah, that was amazing to know that. Yeah, it's amazing. The one thing that I wasn't a fan of, I know what I wasn't a fan of. I know why I wasn't a fan of it. And I'm not saying that whoever was in charge of it failed horribly at their job. You know, no. It just didn't work for us. I don't think it worked. I didn't get paid to do the show. So clearly, I saw something different, and I could be very well wrong. The important thing is, I'm not tearing the show apart and telling people you shouldn't like this show. What I'm saying is, this is my opinion. Now go out and see the show. Go listen to the soundtrack. What do you think? Mm-hmm. And maybe someone will see something that we didn't and go, mm, this is what I think. And they'll see something that we didn't go. We go, oh, well, I didn't think of it that way. Now, when you look at it through that lens, oh, it's about figuring out what worked, what didn't work. So you have a better understanding. And then maybe through that, you can figure, you, you see shows through a different light. The show has had several notable performers, including Brooks Ashmankis, Zach Braff, Vincent Pastor, Betsy Wolf, Eric Santagata, Amanda Lutz Larson, Marin Maisie, and Nick Cordero. So let's now talk about the impact this show has had on the theater and its history. As for theatrical impact, I mean, it brought to the stage the iconic film. Bullets over Broadway, mm-hmm. you know, I and I, I, I strayed away from saying a cult classic because I don't think it's a cult classic. I mean, I don't know if it was one of those like blockbuster hits up there with like Star Wars and Titanic, but I mean, I feel like there is a huge number of people that just yeah, they know Bullets over Broadway, they know Woody Allen, but it's more maybe in that indie area. I don't know. I'm not a big film person, so if there's someone out there that knows film, they can explain it. Because I don't remember if Bullets Over Broadway ever did. Was it an indie film when it was released or was it a mainstream film? See, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I also think this was another huge show from Susan Stroman. Well, and I also think that one of the impacts of this show is that you can do everything right and it still doesn't hit right. Yeah. It's proof of that. Like, they're, they're, on paper, there is no reason why I shouldn't have loved this show. Mm-hmm. And yet there was a disconnect. So I think that is an important impact, especially because this show didn't play as long as they thought it would. Right. You know. I also think and uh, the last impact for me is it's another backstage folly story. Yeah. For the theater. You know, we, who doesn't love that? But it, it's done really, it's a different kind of folly story, not just about everything's going wrong backstage. Like, a, um, oh, what's the play I'm thinking of? Um... It's not noise you can't off. noises off. I was like, not you can't take it with you. Noises off. It's not like the noises off, but it's more of a it's a different take about like, well, what if it was like a ghostwriter and gangster? So, what about societal impact? Now, this is where I struggled. I really can't think of anything societally impactful from the show, besides the fact that it just offered entertainment and folly for audiences. Right. Well, and you know, maybe also that could have been its you know, missing ingredient. That it didn't have a societal well, I don't impact. think all shows have to have I, a societal impact. I completely impact. agree with that, but who knows, maybe that could have been the element, is that it didn't have a message behind the story. Maybe. I, I don't know. I, don't know. I think just, I think just entertainment and folly is good enough, but I. this is a great example of, you know, we've said it before, not all shows will have a societal impact. Here's one I think that didn't have one. Didn't need one. Gangsters are bad. Yeah, we know that. 
Mm-hmm. You know, if it maybe a, I would say it brought audi- a new audience to the stage who's a fan of Woody Allen, but I kind of feel like the people who like Woody Allen probably also like theater. Mm-hmm. I would bet that. Right, and if you're a fan of Bullets Over Broadway, you kind of already liked Broadway to begin with. Yeah, you know, you you it's a love letter to the stage, so it's not like you're unfamiliar with the theater. Exactly. So then I think then that leads us with the question of is this show still relevant? This is a no for me. For regional houses and maybe even community and collegiate theater, absolutely. But if the show was reworked, possibly. But for right now, this is a no in my opinion. Yeah, I don't think this show is for Broadway, which is funny because it's literally bullets over Broadway. But yeah, I just, I mean, it's it's material that exists out there and it could be fun for regional and collegiate. But yeah, I don't know. It'd be interesting to see what maybe new uh, artistic hands and eyes on it can do but i just not right now on broadway Mm-mm. finally as promised we wanted to share some of our own personal stories about experiencing the show so we have the good fortune of getting to see the show in 2014 and i remember seeing the show and being both entertained and confused and amused and disappointed for me yeah, but I mean, it's it was the show that we capped off our trip in 2014 with. Um, and we did so because we were like, oh my gosh, I love this movie. And look at all the people who are in it. Like, this is going to be huge. And yeah, it was a letdown to finish the trip off with. But I mean, we I, I still enjoyed it. I just, it wasn't what I was hoping it would be. Mm-hmm. One, unfor- this is the first time, and only time this happened, but it was an unfortunate experience. Um a patron at that show at intermission had a heart attack, remember? Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, we were in intermission. And here's what I remember about this. So we did have balcony tickets, but we got moved to the mezzanine. The show wasn't selling well, so they moved us to the mezzanine. So first time, only time we've been in the mm-hmm. mezzanine. Second time. Second time? Oh. Present laughter. Present laughter. We were in the mezzanine, and I just remember the intermissions going. And because I got the alert about our flight and had to check in. This is early days of the Delta app. And then all of a sudden, like, there was a hubbub in the orchestra. And the intermission just kept going and going. And then the FDNY showed up and they were taking the guy out in the stretcher and he had had a heart attack. The intermission was like a 45-minute long intermission. Mm -hmm. Um, But the cast came back still at a 100. And so kudos to them. I mean, that's... That's hard. That sucks the air out of the theater, you know. And I hope that patron is all right. I mean, of course, we obviously didn't hear how what the outcome is. We're not family or anything, so why would we know? But hopefully they were okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and then meeting the cast afterwards, you know. I remember Zach Braff having tons of energy. He leaped out of the theater, literally, to come meet the crowd. Yeah. Um, and, and that was amazing, but the two people that... I that meant the most to meeting for me, um, which sadly they are both no longer with us. Um, but Mary Maisie and Nick Cordero, meeting those two. I mean, Mary Maisie is already she was a legend. She is a legend of the stage. And Nick Cordero, I mean, he was rising so fast. He was, oh, he was so good. And the things he, I, he's gone way too soon. The stuff that I, I feel like he could have done, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but meeting those two, it was amazing. Absolutely amazing. You'll be able to catch Bullets Over Broadway at a theater near you sometime soon. 
We also want to remind you that you can now become a producer and patron of the show by getting your backstage pass or by leaving a monthly tip in our tip jar. Information about our backstage pass can be found at patreon.com slash stagewhisperpod. So until next time, I'm Andrew Cortez. And I'm Hope Bird. Reminding you to turn off your cell phones. Unwrap your candies and keep your mask on. And keep talking about the theater. In a stage whisper. Thank you. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review, like, and subscribe. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Stage Whisper Pod. And feel free to reach out to us with your comments and personal stories at stagewhisperpod at gmail.com. Our theme song is Fox by Music for Wildlife. Other music on this episode provided by U.S. Army Blues and Billy Murray. This episode was produced by Sarah Harley. With a friend so dear.